0: Hi, folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. As you know, as, I've, as you've probably heard me say before, we rely entirely on listener support, and the way we do that is via the Patreon model. It is really simple. You just need to click the link that's in this podcast you're listening to right now. It says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack, and have a look at the levels and see if there's something that fits your budget, and maybe just try it for a month and see if you think it's good value for money. You get lots extras for that. You get access to our live online Sunday shows where we, where we break down the news of the week with a great panel, and then we turn off the recording and have a Q&A with you, our members. You also get all of our podcasts in one consolidated feed, including our entire back catalogue now of over 1,000 e- episodes of, of various podcasts from across the tortoise shack. If you don't have the few quid, maybe recommend us to someone. We rely on word of mouth. We've no ads. We've no sponsors. So if you'd like to help us out and you don't have the couple of quid, that's the way to help us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. I won't delay any further. Enjoy the pod.
1: Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope. And I'm your host, Rory Hearn. I'm delighted to be joining the podcast today by an expert in the area of mental health and social work. Um, and it is some of our listeners will be will probably know uh, Calvin Swords, who is a assistant professor, a colleague of mine, um, and he's assistant professor of social work in the Department of Applied Social Studies in Maynooth, where I work. Calvin, it's great to have you on Reboot Republic.
2: I'm very happy to be here, Rory. And um, that's a very nice introduction. Um, so no pressure. But uh, yeah, really nice to be here with you. No <laughs> so with pressure at all. Yeah, mind. yeah.
1: Um, listen, Calvin, I've been meaning to uh, talk to you for quite a while. Um, around the whole issue of mental health because it is your area that you did your PhD on, um, and an area you've worked in. Yeah, and it's something that is, you know, has become thankfully um an area that we're increasingly talking about and understanding and resourcing though not resourcing enough um but there was a couple of things i wanted to chat to you about um and one of them is your uh, we'll we'll come to this but just to to give listeners a sense of where we're going to go to um like your you say your research interests um are informed by Seeking to address the social injustices faced by people um, and that looking at social recovery in mental health, and in particular, the role of sociology on health related social work and using philosophy in social work practice. So, I'm really looking forward to having it. What do you mean by that? But first, before we go to that, you wrote a piece. Um, for the Maynooth University and it's on the Maynooth University website and I recommend people to have a look at it and it's um, called do we fully understand the significant differences between mental health challenges and mental illness and you talk about discourses around mental health during the pandemic and afterwards and how kind of the concept of mental health became a key focus in discourses during the pandemic. But you make the point in it that, yes, while we've, you know, it's good to be talking about the struggles that what you refer to, and and it's probably worth, you know, interrogating the use of this term as well, normal people, what they experienced during the pandemic and how their, their mental health was affected. And there was a lot of talk about that. But you point out that, The pandemic also highlighted inequalities um, faced by people and that, that, you know, that there was these inequalities became entrenched or worsened during the pandemic, particularly, for example, you talk about those living with a mental illness, with disabilities, um, adults in, in institutions and that in sense what you talk about and maybe you ask and say in the last line we must ask ourselves have we taken the granted of what it is really like to live with a mental illness and that there's not the same exposure given to experiences of people living with mental illnesses maybe you could explain that a little
2: yeah no pressure yeah No pressure yeah, whatsoever no yes yeah, so it was a piece i was meaning to write for quite a while rory um and I suppose it stems from a few different kind of reflections and experiences. Um, yeah. So I, I suppose to start with during the PhD, when I was, um, you know, collecting my data, a big thing that came came up within the data was the fact that um, a lot of people living with a mental illness, okay, so that are diagnosed with, with say, psychosis, schizophrenia, and so on. Um that they felt like societal discourse and people in society um, were talking about mental health, which was great. And it's great that people feel they can start to open up and we still have a way to go with that, but that it's a lot different to, to suffer maybe with, you know, you know, a kind of a, a period where you have anxiety or a low period, but to actually live with a mental illness, you know, your, your life, a successful kind of journey around recovery with a mental illness could be that you get up in the morning and you make yourself a cup of tea and get yourself dressed to go for a walk. And that could be your journey. Um, in comparison to someone who's say coming out on social media and with lockdown, a lot of people were coming out talking about, you know, their mental health challenges and being isolated and so on, but that doesn't last for the rest of their life. Okay. So you know, some some people will recover completely after having an acute episode with a mental illness, but some people will have to live with them symptoms for their life. So that, that was where it kind of initially started, that kind of talk of, you know, people taking for granted what's involved in living with a mental illness and actually trying to recover or to live the best life you can. So when I talk about recovery, what I mean by recovery in a mental health, kind of context is it's a it's this philosophy this idea of trying to live the best life you can with your symptoms and to build a you know a new or a different type of identity following your diagnosis so that was one part that kind of motivated me to write the piece and then during the lockdown I'm still in contact with with people in the field that are living with their um Their diagnosis, for example, and one person was on the phone to me one evening who runs a a, a, runs who's part of a club in Dublin um, for people living with mental illness, and he said to me, Calvin, you know, a lot of the normal people, people that aren't living with a diagnosis, um, they they're talking in the media about this isolation, you know, not being able to see their family, their friends, um, having no sense of connection, and he said to me, Calvin, that's what it's like for me and all my other, all those that are living in the meltdowns. This is, that's what it's like for us before the pandemic. Yeah. So I really, I was, it was late. It was home from work late that night, Rory, when he was speaking to me about, it, and it was a really profound kind of, um, you know, moment, just to, all of us who are getting on our lives and, you know, what, what it is, what it means to live is about human connection and relationships. And, that is the reality for a lot of people who are living with their mental illness prior to the pandemic. And within the pandemic, then we are talking around those people deemed normal um, and their challenges. And it was just further forgetting about the voices of, for example, those living with mental illness. So that was kind of the big, the big motivation really behind the piece was to kind of really question whether society really does understand the difference. Um, yeah. And yeah, so I, you might probably want to ask me questions a bit more on that, but that's kind of the motivations behind it, Rory. Yeah. No, uh, it's,
1: it's really interesting because you also point out in the article about, you know, we have celebrities coming out and even saying, you know, they have, they've had experienced, you know, quite acute um, periods or, or bouts of illness, of mental illness, um, even being hospitalized and, Mm -hmm. then coming out and the idea of getting over it or overcoming it and you know there's a almost a is there a celebration of well you're better now Mm -hmm. rather than understanding that mental illness can be with you for all your life but then is that also you know is there a danger then that you assume that once you have one a mental illness then it is with you for all your life or how do you maybe you could give your thoughts on that
2: yeah, it's a, it's a good one. I'd, look, it, it comes back to, you know, what you touched on in relation to, you know, what we all are trying to do in, say, the Department of Applied Social Studies, where we're looking at inequality and injustices that are faced by the groups we we kind of come into contact with. So like for a celebrity or someone that's in the public domain who comes from, you know, not saying that they're coming from a privileged background, but no, they have a lot more opportunities in their day-to-day life that overcoming a a mental illness, I'm not going to say it's easier, but it can be more kind of available to them, the resources needed to actually move on with their lives and not be constantly coming up against obstacles in society that kind of reiterate the fact that that person's living with a mental illness. So what I mean by that is, and based on a lot of my writing and research that I've done to date is that... With every interaction we have going back into society as someone who is diagnosed, who's not a celebrity with mental illnesses, yeah. whether that is, for example, employment, having to disclose, you know, um, that you have a mental illness that straight away for a lot of people when they they'd say this, the response and reaction of, of people in society in in the workplace often changes and imp- and kind of further solidifies that. You know, if I talk or I show my identity with my mental illness that I'm not going to be able to integrate and move into society. So that's one example with employment. It can be similar to do with friends. It can be similar to do with just people in general that once people hear that word that I'm of a diagnosis, that people all of a sudden become very, you know, maybe not saying shocked, but make assumptions about what that is and people become further and further isolated because off all their interactions being that way you
1: know yeah no that makes a lot of sense in the in in the sense that a celebrity coming in, and making that and saying you know i you know i experienced this mm. they're met with huge positive response and people yeah. stop them and say well done for talking about it and whereas you're saying for a lot of people who don't have that status or mm. resources you know or privilege the response is one of you know, as you say, their senses themselves, I can't talk about it or I can't, you know, mention it, or there is obviously still stigma, you know, around it and, you know, prejudice or whatever, in terms of people saying, being a bit going, "Mm, is this person reliable? Um, You know, what's, what is, is it going to happen again? And what does that mean? And um, Mm -hmm. being reluctant to take them on. And even as you say, in relationships as well, Mm -hmm. um, in personal relationships, the challenges around that and just then in in terms of you know access to services support services you know to help respond and and deal with a mental illness and you know even recovery clearly i assume that there are massive differences in terms of if you have the resources to pay for it privately yeah. what you can get versus relying on the public service is there that do we have the same health apartheid in access to mental health services for those suffering mental illnesses as we do in the general health service in, in a lot of areas?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Rory. I mean, yeah, it's a very valid consideration and it, it is the re- reflected in services that if you can pay privately, you will you tend to get a better service. I mean, we're probably going to get a chance to go into it a bit more, but you know, we still are seeing a very strong focus on a biomedical model. The medical model you know mm. in terms of how we view mental illness and mental health kind of difficulties so that there's there is that cultural change that does still need to take place within services and With the public and private, but it also comes back to this kind of consumerist world that we're in. You know, we think around capitalism, we think about neoliberalism and and the influences that they have on our society. They do play a role in who is supported and who isn't, if you can pay for it. so that does have a role as well. And, you know, in terms of the more money we have, you know, it, it, it kind of it tends to enhance the opportunities we potentially would have as well in our lives, you know, getting into education, you know, in terms of, you know, what supports we need in terms of our relationships and everything. It does play a role. Um, so and that kind of stems into kind of sociology when we look at kind of the idea of cap social capital and cultural capital and um, so yeah it does there is there is a big difference but I do think it's not as simple as, just, you know, the fact that, you know, if you go privately, you're going to get the services you need. We need to see a true reflection of a, a real multidisciplinary approach to mental health and mental illness, which is still not the case across the board. Um, and changing that is is slow and that will take time. So,
1: And, and there's two things coming to yeah. my head. One is I want to ask you to explain um what do you mean by the biomedical model? Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so the biomedical model is is, is essentially the, the position or the, the body of knowledge that's used by psychiatry to determine, you know, their decision-making, their interventions, to understand what someone has, their diagnosis, and to make decisions around that. And it comes from a very kind of, you know, it focuses on measurement that focus on wanting to quantify what mental illness is similar to other areas of medicine. Okay. So, yeah, you know, when we think around, if I, you know, at the moment, I've, I, I think it's on Twitter anyway, I've, I broke my leg. Yeah. So, uh, if, you know, if, if we want to know that I broke my leg, we go and we do a, an MRI scan and we see that I've a broken leg, you can see it. When when we when we talk about doing scans to identify schizophrenia or bipolar, there still isn't the the, the evidence base to 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 illustrate that in them types of kind of biomedical models of, of of you know understanding illness as illness is seen in the kind of medical model of things across yeah. medicine. So you know <sighs> Within that, I mean, there's different pockets I can go into in terms of cause psychiatrists took part in my PhD and, I, you know, and then other research I've done and they're, you know, I've planned, I've a lot of time for their role and I, I I really respect it. but it's just in terms of, you know, they still, it still seems to be the option and, and the reflection of people's experiences for those using services, in terms of service users, family members, and then other disciplines, and um, so I, that's that essentially it's 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 just the, the the body of knowledge that psychiatry are using is that it's an illness that mental health is an illness. And yes, some people will say that no, it isn't an illness; it is completely socially constructive. Some will say there is that element that is biological that is that is in you that you your symptoms are there that it's not to do with how society has has seen you or not so um i hope that explains that question yeah, and and it yeah.
1: brings on because the 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 second question follows on from that and it was a thought i had and and we've i've had before on here and um uh, listeners will be well familiar with me banging on about um the spirit level and the work of uh, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, mm-hmm. who are epidemiologists uh, in the UK, whose study of societies showed that more unequal societies had higher rates of mental illness than more equal societies. And they looked at that, you know, uh, and explained it through different factors that that clearly inequality is a contributing factor to higher rates of mental illness in terms of what they refer to as status anxiety um, but all the different anxieties and stress that goes along with living in poverty or living in inequality and um, living with inequality. Um, and, you know, you refer to there, you know, this the social constructivism um, approaches that see it differently. Maybe you could explain those a bit if in terms of, you know, what is the if, if there's one is a biomedical model, what's yeah. the alternative yeah. philosophy or, or approach to understanding mental illness
2: yeah so like you know there's like i suppose when you think about it, there's the biomedical there's the psychological model of the stress there is the social model okay so these are the different and then when you think about them different models we have our different disciplines within teams so psychiatry comes from the medical model you know nursing comes from the same model as well For example, social work comes from a social model, Would also is, you know, their professional kind of education would also be informed by psychology as well. And sociology, you've occupational therapy that would kind of stem from looking at the activities of daily life. And so it's when they are all brought together, Rory, it's looking at, you know, mental illness through the lens of a holistic approach, a biopsychosocial model so it's seeing the whole person it's seeing the it's seeing the kind of the challenges that they face from the family perspective from in relation to their class their status in relation to their physical symptoms so it's 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 trying to move to a, 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 a kind of a, an approach that's not just looking at us from okay the physical symptoms it's also looking at their relationships their so their social relationships it's also looking at You know, when you, you know, around their spirituality, their religion um, and and trying to kind of consider the whole person and how we consider the whole person stems from having not just on paper, a multidisciplinary team, but actually that that's reflected in the experiences of people using services that Instead of when they, you know, anyone I asked that only had a very strong experience of the biomedical model, when you ask them what recovery means to them. It means to take your medication, to be looked after by staff. But then when someone has had an experience of all the disciplines, they will talk about it's, it's to have, you know, housing, it's to live independently. It's, it's to have a supportive family. It's so it all comes back to when we talk about social constructionism, it's, you know, there's plenty of different factors and concepts within that, that big theory, um, which looks at how our world socially constructs us. And that includes language. It includes discourse, which is the different ways that we construct, construct language, whether that's to do with policies, whether that's how, how we construct meaning in meetings, whether that's how we construct meaning within them, very everyday interactions between service providers and service users, and then where power comes in. So, yeah, I mean, you probably want to ask me a bit more detail, but that just gives you, I suppose, an idea of of what, what we are hoping for, this idea of a biomedical holistic model. But the reality is, from policy to practice, is that often that doesn't, um, you know, transform into reality.
1: Yeah, no, no, it's really fascinating because this, you know, the biopsychosocial model that you talk about, which is... Essentially bringing the medical lens, the psychological lens, the so- sociological, social lens, you know, and, and social work doesn't view mental illness as simply coming from within the person. And I've talked about this, I was actually talked about it very recently with, in a previous podcast um, with the Ombudsman for Children, Niall Muldoon, Niall Muldoon about the pathologizing of children you know, and and this, and, and it's, in a way, isn't, that's part of our problem that we see these, we look at mental illness and we look at the person and we see, okay, what is wrong with you rather than looking at what the fuck is wrong with society yeah, that leads people and results in people suffering such levels of mental illness, which then though raises the question, is the mental illness coming from as you said that within something like biologically is going on with the person or is it because of the stress that's happening around them, poverty, inequality, yeah. grief, mm. trauma. Um, Yeah. But then they have biological manifestations. Mm-hmm. So in a way it's all biological, but it has different causes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, look, and that's, that is that like, I mean, if you look at, the idea of recovery that I touched on earlier on, my argument based on my PhD is that it is an unfulfilled concept. It's a neoliberal concept. So what I mean by that is is okay, you've your diagnosis, you're you were acutely unwell, you know, now you're in your recovery. We're going to support you to live a life where you build a new identity and you go back into society and we're going to support you. But then the minute people leave services into into society, there isn't the resources available unless you have the money to do it to mm. actually integrate back into society so it's 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 a philosophy that doesn't actually isn't actually translatable into practice it's it's an empty concept so it's it is a huge part of it is as you mentioned is to do with obviously trauma to do with um to do with uh, poverty to do with other uh, inequalities that people are faced with and like even when you're touching on that instead of asking what's wrong with you a new model that's come out since the in the last couple of years from lucy johnston is the idea of the power threat meaning framework it's a psychological model that deems deems the biomedical model that we need to stop using as the cornerstone of how we view mental illness and instead we need to look through this trauma informed lens and instead of asking, you know, Rory, what's wrong with you, we ask, what's happened to you.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's
2: a very distinctive difference. Um, and like I suppose for me, it's I'm not saying that that's the answer either. I'm not saying that yeah. looking through that lens, but it is quite profound change in how we look at a person's reality and their experience by asking what's happened to them rather than what's wrong with them, and it it moves beyond that. And I, and I would action. and I would
1: go to to what's happening to you, yeah, yeah. You know, in the sense of particularly living circumstances, and you know, we look at mental illness, and and of course around you know anxiety. I think, of course, housing and you know the stress people are living mm-hmm. under, and the existential stress of a generation who can't see a future of having a home of their own, and and what that must do, and and that that question then is that can You know, when you talk about mental illnesses, Mm. can mental ill health and stress and anxiety lead to chronic mental illness?
2: Yeah, it's a good question, or, you know, some will argue that there's a predisposition there that people have genetically that will lead to being brought out. Some people will argue that. It's to do with the person's environment that that draws it out. And, and that can be dependent on your position in society, you know, mm. your class, your status and, um, you know, where you where you're, you come from and and how much trauma you've experienced or adverse experience, adverse childhood experiences. Mm. And even into adulthood can have a significant impact on bringing that out. So, you know, it's it's it is the case that some people will um lead into a chronicity in terms of mental mental illness but some like not everyone will obviously um but i think that you know one thing to kind of think about is if we look at you know psychiatry and how they diagnose people that they have a, a, a manual a diagnostic manual called the dsm or the icd mm. manual yeah and this is a book that's been created by you know very high um highly regarded psychiatrists in the field who based on what behaviors people are shown will say that that's schizophrenia, that's psychosis, but the the manual has become bigger and bigger in over the years. And I I won't, I won't, and this is no, not being, you know, critical of psychiatry, but the DSM is, was one of the, in, in recent, in the recent years was one of, I think it was the top of the book charts for, for a period of time. And you would wonder, you'd wonder why this is the case, and why is it that it's uh, it's it's top of the charts? But the pharmaceutical companies, uh, you know, sent a lot of bought a lot of copies and sent them out to psychiatrists around the world, which had an impact on the you know it becoming the like a leading book in the field across, just not just uh, psychiatry and mental health. Mm. Um, so there is like it, it is moving away but there like I suppose that's a side angle I'm just I'm kind of touching on but the fact is is that we're still wanting to maintain that focus on it, the personal it's being a it's a personal thing it's it's the individual responsibility for for us which is really just re really putting unfair expectations on not only this person who's living with us, but I've, I'd have i also argue that the providers, the professionals, that they're not equipped with the supports either or the, the resources and the time to actually support someone to actually, you know, deliver on this idea of recovery.
1: Um, and of course, when you put an individual responsibility on somebody, mm-hmm. their ability to deal with that responsibility is completely dependent on the resources available to them. Yeah. So it immediately exacerbates inequalities in yeah. society.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And on that point, you know, the, the word recovery, if I was asking you, Rory, you know, noting about what I just said, if I was asked you, what does recovery mean? Just gen- generically, what would your view on it be? It's well, the
1: idea of recovery is overcoming something.
2: Yeah. It's, yeah. it's
1: having experienced something And then getting over it and not being affected by it anymore.
2: Yeah. So, and with that, and we think about philosophical thinking and questioning, by using the word recovery, it's aligning with the biomedical model. You know, I know it's a very subtle use of language, but if we think about recovery and what society views as it, and then we actually are using that concept, it aligns with, with that idea of, you know, Returning to how we are without an illness or after a broken leg, and it's forgotten about and never affects us. Now, what people say within the field, even those with lived experience and, and users of services and leaders of services, say, "Well, recovery is the word that we've has been developed into the, key, the kind of keyword, the buzzword, and mm-hmm. if we start changing it now, why would we change it?" but it, it kind of fits with the whole kind of way idea of the way our world is socially constructed, the discourses that dominate and the ones that don't. Um, and, and, and it, that's a, an argument that I, I would make and anything I write is around the personalization of recovery and that kind of overwhelming dominance and focus on the medical model.
1: But to challenge you back, yeah. could yeah, yeah. the words, and the concept of recovery not also include a more holistic biopsychosocial aspects if it was combined, not just with medical responses.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I think the issue with that is that we know what we, it's, it's, it's still, it's when we talk about how service engage with people how we engage in our multidisciplinary team meetings, how we engage at policy level, there's the way we view the world recovery and how it's actually reflected in experiences. There's still that gap. So even even if we say okay, we're going to we, we when we talk about recovery, it is about the bio cycle model. It's about being holistic in our approach. It still doesn't translate into practice. So how do we change that? So, it, you know, there's different ways that we can look at changing it. It's to do with, you know, how, how we how we write about it, how we talk about it, how we how policy constructs their different documents in, in terms of how realistic we can apply things in practice. There's lots of different things around the culture that has a big and, role. And, yeah, and is
1: there another aspect to it, which is? um. Which I think is in your critique, and 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 is that yeah. the idea of recovery is an endpoint suggests mm-hmm. an endpoint. Yeah. Whereas with some mental illnesses, there's not an endpoint. Yeah. And it is a living with. Yeah. And there's a number of sides to that. One is from the pharmaceutical company's point of view, that's fantastic because it means the the from the medical model or the medical <laughs> <laughs> the medical model. Yeah. Um. That you're required to continuously take these drugs which are paid for uh, by the and made for and profited by by the pharmaceutical company into perpetuity. The psychiatrist has their role where they check you every so often and continue on your medicine and decide with their expertise, does your level need to be adjusted or not? Mm. Um, and that's and therefore, in a way, recovery is not an end point. In under that model, um, but then in another sense, is there? If you don't choose recovery, you're suggesting that there isn't an end point, and therefore I can't get better, and therefore that makes me even feel worse. Um, yeah, yeah. What's your response to those? <laughs>
2: yeah, it's good. Look, it's great. These are these are these are good at uh, conversations to have. Yeah. So I suppose based on that, like an argument that I've been trying to develop and, you know, there's a piece coming out soon around the evidence base for this idea of social recovery is that right now it's, it is all on, you know, if we don't, you don't accept, if you don't, uh, you know, adopt recovery, you know, it's going to be even worse for you. But if we look at recovery as uh, from the perspective of social recovery, which is around the idea of focusing specifically on the, the, change is needed from a societal perspective yeah so if instead of all our policy documents and all our discussions from top down of services and uh, in ireland and and beyond talking about recovery as a personalized journey if we talk about recovery as a societal journey you know into society which involves you know if we did a talk about the difference between personal and social recovery, social recovery is around, well, how do we support people to become active citizens in society? How do we build their social and cultural capital that so that we can actually allow them to go back in and to engage with people in whether that's education, employment, their own relationships, and not to be reminded of their mental illness in every interaction. Yeah. So if we, develop policies that consider well how do we provide resources that allow someone to have the social and cultural capital or more opportunities for that how do we you know talk around making someone an active citizen that can that can help to to change how we actually view recovery and not only for the users of services, but also I think for providers that they would feel a lot of frustration with the idea of the revolving door kind of Mm. um, idea. And that we, you know, the the expectation then on changing what our communities and societies around us puts the the emphasis then on government and policy to to really think about it in that kind of perspective. Um, Instead of it being around the services you know, having the responsibility and the, the users of services. So, I don't know if I'm answering your question. I'm more probably just expanding on my take on instead of just having recovery as a personalized journey adoption, it should be that our philosophy, our vision, our expectation in our language and discourse is all around the idea of. Well, how do we make someone an active citizen? How do we how do we build our resources from a cultural and social perspective in terms of you know capital or opportunities? Um yeah.
1: And and the question of you know, our res, resourcing of that and our services currently, how would you assess them?
2: Yeah, so it's like so for example, Rory, we have in 2006, we had a vision for change. Okay, which set out a really interesting, you know, policy vision for for services in Ireland, um, for and for mental health this, services. Yeah, mental health services. Yeah, exactly. And you know, this idea of recovery that we've talked about. Should be you all want to hear the word recovery again? <laughs> um, was puts corn was front and center in that document. That that's mm. what we need to consider. Then in 2020, with the Sharing division, the new policy, a mental health policy for everyone, again, a very, you know, interesting, um, you know, document, very visionary again. But the issue with the policy is that there is no costing done around putting this into practice. So it's great to talk around, you know, a whole government approach around trauma-informed care you know, applying so, uh, a kind of a social determinants model of health towards mental health. But no one has sat down and gone, okay, well, how, how, how much is this going to cost? Like, how, yeah. how are we going to actually put this into, into practice? So for me, you know, instead of, I'm not like, and there's plenty of good things being done. You know, there's the implementation policy that came out last year of the hundred recommendations that are being slowly kind of implemented by the different services that are meant to show how vi- sharing the vision from 2020 will be put into practice yeah that's at the at the end of the day it's it's, it's still it's still not being cost us. so for me personally and from speaking to people wouldn't it be much better to sit down and go well this is what money we have? Can we not look at a realistic policy that can achieve the budget we have? I'm not saying that's going to solve it, and instead of writing a policy that isn't realistic of of being translated into practice, you know, because it it, it costs it's going to cost a lot more than what they're saying it's going to cost.
1: Yeah. Or I would again challenge you. Back. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go on. I would. I would start. I think it's a great thing for policy. Yeah. To be visionary. And set out what actually should be done. Yeah. Um, But then it needs the resources to implement it. Yeah. And yeah. I think the point that you're making is absolutely fair that, well, if it's not costed, then there's no real intention to implement it. Mm-hmm. Or there's not a budget allocated to actually implement it. Yeah. Then the issue is, which we have in some cases in Ireland, really good policy and a lack of implementation. Yeah. And accountability as well of that. Mm -hmm. And where has it been put put into practice? And that could be extremely and is extremely frustrating. Mm -hmm. But I would say if you have a good policy there and you're saying that's a good policy, Mm -hmm. then that is a tool for advocating and saying, look, Mm -hmm. we have this policy. This is agreed. This is a good thing. The problem in housing is we have the bloody wrong policies, (laughs) you know, even, you know, it's it doesn't accept that there's a need for a holistic response to housing from State, whereas if you're saying there's a good policy there, Mm -hmm. but it's not being funded or implemented adequately, that's a different argument. And I think, in a way, you're in a stronger position, and the case should be made okay, we need this to be funded, and why isn't it being funded? Why are we not prioritizing this? Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, it's you know, probably just I, I would absolutely agree that we need to be visionary of policy. I suppose it's just based on, you know, my experiences today that, you know, it would be good for people using services to be given a maybe whether it's kind of what can be achieved in the here and now. And then mm. what we need to really stem for in the next 10 years, that that people will know that what's, what's realistic now and what's realistic in five to 10 years time, you know, I suppose that's it's probably coming from knowing and speaking to people and and feeling like that similarly with vision for change that you know so much promise and so much hope and for change that that you know it being let down again is a frustra is is just it's just hard to you know to, to see that maybe happen again, which I don't think it'll happen again to the same extent, but just in terms of you know. Giving people more of a, uh, you know, a better a better experience of services, whether they're working in them or being provided with the services, and then maybe as you say, it's, you know, it's not to lose sight of the, the vision and to to advocate for them changes.
1: Uh, yeah, so. and in terms of back to the original um, or the starting point and and motivation and kind of question, mm. that this focus on mental health and discussion of mental health, that. Is it that those then with a mental illness, which is different and more severe, and maybe you could explain what mental illness we're talking about, that that is getting lost in that wider discussion of mental health?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So it's really, it's it's to do with people who are living with, you know, chronic mental illness. So, you know, as it is in society, they're not able to, well, some are, but they they feel the only way they can participate in our society is by not talking about their, their their mental illness within society. And you know, what I mean by diagnosis is whether that's schizophrenia, bipolar, um, and so on, you know, these these kind of diagnoses that impact on their lives and every in their everyday experiences. So, you know, some people will be able to, you know, take their medication, go back to work back into employment you know go back into education and live and live the the life of what is deemed normal and um, and be able to just kind of forget about their their illness but for there is a spectrum of of how people manage their lives and how they they manage their symptoms and you know for some people it is about being able to get up in the morning And make a cup of tea, make their breakfast, go for a walk. And that might be what they're only able to do, Rory, in their everyday life. Okay. And that's I suppose the the whole isolation of, of this kind of group of people where it does impact on their everyday functioning and their and their life and and that they lead every day is that they can't really talk about them challenges. Because people who aren't living with them diagnosis in society and impacting on them every day where they say, you know, I am suffering with mental health challenges or mental, you know, mental health difficulties. But they're still able to go out the next day and work their nine to five job. They're able to look after their children and so on. Uh, It doesn't affect them to the same extent, but they're the stories that the media are hearing. They're the stories we're seeing on social media, but we're not hearing the stories of the people who might only be able to, you know, for them, a good day is getting out of bed and being able to talk to someone else. Yeah. Um, and then the, the flip side as well, Rory is that the people that can function at a high level. So someone that has a diagnosis, and as I said, they can go back to their the life of a normal person. And I don't even like using the normal, but it's just yeah. the purpose of the argument that they're often the people who are being put out into the media, or being put out into positions to say, "Well, look, this is this is," and they and we need that. We need people to be empowered to feel like they can achieve things, and mm-hmm. you know that this is possible. But isn't wouldn't it be a, a fair reflection to, you know, have not just the people that are able to go back to normal life? Wouldn't it be good that we 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 ex- listen and experience? people in, in positions in society that are, are able to come out and talk about their, about their, the reality of their life and how, you know, it isn't possible for them just to go back into the community because they don't have the supports and so on. So I hope that answers It Maybe I have gone off on a tangent there. No, though. no,
1: no, 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 It it, it does. It does. Absolutely. And I'm thinking in my head, like the, you know, there's not a, an equivalence of, for example, talking about living with cancer and people talking about a diagnosis of cancer. Mm. Mm-hmm. as there is with a diagnosis with a mental illness and living with mental illness. Would that be fair to say?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: And, and therefore, why is that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. stigma. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's stigma. It's it's stigma. It's, um, it's, it's to do with, um, you know, it's also to do with, you know, we won't go, we probably won't go into it, but it's also to do with culture. It's to do with, it's, you know, Irish society, how it's developed, um, it's to do with fear. It's to do with, um, it's it's to do with you know, you know that that overwhelming pressure to have to succeed yourself in yeah. in recovery, you know, and I just think it's 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 a huge it's a, it's a huge um expectation to be put on someone that's, you know, you you know, I've gone back, I'm after been diagnosed i'm feeling much better go out i'm on my social media accounts and ex-celebrity is talking around their recovery they're back doing everything and there's someone else that's doing really well and like i feel like i'm nowhere near that and you know i have to achieve this it's up to me again it it, it's very it's a very neoliberal kind of um experience you know reflection for people.
1: Yeah. You know. it, it's a fascinating discussion, and it's something that I really would like to uh, delve into more again. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the we could go on, but unfortunately, um, people yeah. tend to listen to about, you know, three quarters of an hour, maybe yeah. an hour. <laughs> Fair play to the listeners who are still with us yeah. um, as we head towards the hour mark. Um, and we'll come back to it, Calvin. I'd love to have you back on again. Yeah, and I know yeah. Um, that listeners will have got a lot out of this because it is clearly, you know, conversation and we need to understand it better and, and, and you know, again, question and question the society and economy that, you know, as you say, um, pushes us towards this version of success. And I'm really struck as well, I'm thinking, you know, what came out this week around the child and adolescent mental health services and the the report um, showing the lack of access to the the CAMs, these CAM services, but also waiting waiting lists and delay times, and people not being uh, followed, children, not people, children, not being supported. Um, but then, on the other hand, there's a strong critique of the CAMs service as being a purely biomedical model. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you have a view on that?
2: yeah i mean i look i i'm i have i have had a look through the report i haven't gone into extensive kind of analysis of it yet rory Um busy week with uh with uh teaching and everything but you know unfortunately in the world we live in it is it is all about measurement it's all about quantifying our outcomes and our approaches so the easiest way to provide a service is through giving a tablet for example or through the medical model yeah um, in terms of it's not only the quickest way it, it you know it's the quickest way in terms of for a lot of people when we think about trauma for example you know that needs time. We, people need time with their psychiatrists, with their teams, with with the people that are the professional expertise. They need they like 10 15 minutes isn't enough or a Skype call. you know so th- and that's not just speaking to say cams, it's also speaking to just adult services that you know moving towards a model where it's, it's it isn't time limited and we're not being measured on how many discharges that we we have. Or we've achieved or getting people off our waiting lists. It's not, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do, but being able to shift that kind of change is, is, is kind of something I would feel strongly
1: about. And of course the time requires resources. And yes. that's the point, isn't it? That's <laughs> yeah. And would you, you know, in terms of the, the more holistic response, mm. There is the social issues and of course, I think of children in homelessness, for example, and, you know, and children in poverty and children, as you know, experience trauma, how many of them are just being medicalized yep. as a response mm-hmm. rather than their situations being sorted mm-hmm. in terms of their the housing and family stress. And we know that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, there's the therapeutic response as well, that we don't really resource that sufficiently either or provide that as as a as a response
2: and again and then exactly rory and then you know it's based on people are being diagnosed of things based on behaviors so yeah. if like often sometimes how we behave and if you know to to be basing a someone's diagnosis on 15 minutes or you know an hour Like, you know, we all will behave in different ways in different situations. And I'm not, I'm not saying that it's not that they aren't, they, they don't have that diagnosis, but it's time and to really understand someone's experiences and to move beyond as we talked around asking the question, what's wrong with you to what's happened to you takes an awful lot longer than, you know, I think, you know, than 15 minutes, 20 minutes with someone and. and it, it involves a wraparound approach. It involves there being enough resources in terms of staffing ac- across the different disciplines. Um, it, it involves having the appropriate step down services um, and and the community supports needed, especially housing. You know, it's such a it's a big one. I know that's moving beyond just children, but as you were talking around children and homeless services, mm. um, you know, it's it's a massive issue, and it's it you know. I, ho- I hope that things are going to change based on the report that's come out and um, and you know hopefully it will.
1: Yeah. Well, once we keep highlighting it, keep pushing yeah, it, yeah, you know, yeah, that's how yeah. it changes and you know yeah, the great absolutely. work that's been done by people, you know, and and journalists and you know the advocacy around that and and you know speaking out about it and highlighting it and um I think, you know, and pushing forward alternatives and uh, is, is key, is absolutely key to it. Um, Calvin, listen, thank you so much for giving your time. Pleasure. And- you know where I am. You know what room I have. <laughs> <what I'm in. laughs> I do indeed. I do indeed. Listen, great to chat to you. Calvin Swords, assistant professor um, in the Department of Applied Social Studies in Manute University. Thanks so much for joining me today on Reboot Republic. Thanks a Rory. And thank you, Calvin. Really, really interesting discussion there. Um, and yeah, lots to think about and engage with. Really appreciate, Calvin, given the time and you uh, listeners as well for listening. Thanks so much. Um, appreciate you sharing the podcast around um, on social media. It's great when the word is spread and people get a chance to hear this Um, share it with your friends or family, work colleagues Um, or just post on your social media and also if you can become a patron we are an independent podcast completely reliant on our listeners supporting us you can go over to tortoise shack who is uh, our producer and go over to Patreon um, forward slash tortoise shack and you can sign up and help us out each month to keep the show on the road. And also, if you want to listen back with some great podcasts recently with Claire Dunn, uh, writer and actor on um, her whole experience in writing and acting and housing um, and discussion of hope. And also with Niall Muldoon, which I mentioned earlier, the Ombudsman for Children. And. Um, and Hugh Brennan from the Okulan, um Housing Alliance on how we can provide affordable housing. So yeah, lots to listen back to there. If you're interested, go back, check them out and um, leave us a review. And thank you so much. And we will talk to you all very, very soon.